welcome to the latest episode of If You've Come This Far, where my friend Chris and I have real conversations with interesting people about making life more fulfilling and impactful. Uh, this episode, we're interviewing Ed Hagen, um, who by all accounts has lived a fabulous life. Um, Chris, maybe tell us a little bit more about Ed prior to uh, us sharing this conversation. Yeah, uh, Ed's life is, is, uh, is remarkable. I mean, uh, Ed published, uh, I think what we would call a memoir, uh, memoir last year. Uh, the book is called on the road, less traveled an unlikely journey from the orphanage to the boardroom. Um, I mean, Ed, uh, I'm not going to spoil the, 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 the memoir, but, um, Ed spent much of his childhood, uh, living in foster homes and orphanages, um, uh, then went and did a stint as a Navy officer was a engineer had a long career like uh six decades i think it spanned where he was a successful executive at um uh financial investment firms um and you know as he became successful he's given a lot back to a number of different charities and a number of different schools including his alma mater university of rochester uh where he um he gave a, a thirty million dollar gift uh, a handful of years ago. I think um, uh, he received the Horatio Alger Award, uh, which is given to Americans who exemplify the values of initiative, leadership, and commitment. Um, despite uh, having personal adversities, and you know, I think when you're a kid um, bouncing around between foster homes and orphanages, that's a pretty substantial uh, adversity. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, uh, we also uh, will talk to, to Ed about golf, as Sean and I are wont to do, uh, because uh, Ed and his wife are big golfers, and Ed's also a golf course builder. He's built um, like three golf courses, three, three or golf four courses. golf courses, right? Yeah. yeah. Just because, just because <laughs> nobody else was doing it, just because nobody else was doing it. <laughs> Including one on Nantucket where, uh, and, and one in London too, which is right. crazy. Uh, vale was the other one. Yeah. Vale, yeah, yeah. Right. So sort of low rent golf courses. Uh, at, at one point, uh, and uh, I've heard Ed tell this story before where he talks about how good it feels to, to, make the turn and go grab a sandwich at the clubhouse and, you know, say that your member number is one. Um, At which point I was going to be like, I don't, I've never had a member number. I'm still playing (laughs) public courses. So (laughs) unless your friends, unless your friends invite you to Virginia, to play at then, amazing courses yeah but then my answer is oh my buddy's member number is, <laughs> right, right. is x y or z so um anyway that's pretty neat guy super uh sweet um and i mean the one thing we should we should say is ed's we think ed's 86 85 or 86 yeah. not sure when yeah. his birthday is um yeah. i'm not sure i i'm pretty sure actually that ed is doing more in his life now that i than i am uh, it's amazing. It's right. Amazing. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Got- I mean, and the energy, I mean, he, he talks about the use of energy and he's got so much. I mean, it yeah. was really, it's, I, I always continue to be, I, I'm not envious is not the word, but I'm a hope at 86 that I'm having the same kind of conversations in the same way that, that this guy did uh, with us. Really. Dude, I hope we're around at 86. I mean, just, right. just to be kicking it at all. At 86 is no small feat. And this right. guy has got two more manuscripts He's on boards, uh, both nonprofit boards, corporate boards. Um, 
and yeah and he's still spending time talking about doing startups he was talking about oh yeah i'm working on this startup i'm like what right yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy anyway um it's a good conversation ed's learned a lot of things in the course of this amazing life that he's led uh that i think are applicable to all of us trying to you know make the most out of life and and i guess make meaning out of life right for sure for sure so let's Let's do it it. yeah welcome and thank you for joining us uh ed ed hajim i i have i've watched enough of you got podcast. it right for the first yeah time. yeah mm-hmm. hajim sounds much better if i tell you but hajim's correct well lozier or logier sounds better than <laughs> lozier but so we're in the same boat we yeah. have two you things know the in same common. story exactly, yeah right. yeah um so yeah we, we're, we're psyched we're psyched to, to have you uh join us for this and we have lots of uh of questions so i mean I, there's so much in the book that i want to explore but so I think the first thing is there's there's you write at the end of the book how Barbara wants you to slow down, drink iced tea on the porch. Um, but you still you, you say you have goals that you have yet to achieve. So I'm really curious. I mean, at this point in your life. All that you've done, what are some of those goals? Well, you know, on my hat for my 85th birthday is what's next. What's next is, the, is, is this book. And I have two more manuscripts, which I want to put out. I really believe that my trip can be very beneficial to young people. The 17 to 25-year-old period, when you make lots of your decisions, I want them to look ahead into my life and see the mistakes that I made and the successes I had and so forth, and why. Mm-hmm. And that, that's where the four Ps come in. I want people to develop a conversation with the inner voice as early in their life as possible. They all have it. I want them to recognize it. So one of my goals is to have them recognize this, this conversation with their inner voice and develop a, a, a vocabulary for it. Like the Chinese medicine cabinet, put your passions in a box, put your principles in a box, put, put your partners in a box, put your, put your plans in a box and be able to open that box, look in there and see that. I also feel that there are certain mistakes that people make that I can smooth just a little bit. Like I, I, one of my pitches is never be a victim. I want to get that out to people, especially during pandemic. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody thinks that these are not tough times. These are really easy times. And when in the, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, those were tough times. Mm-hmm. You know, relatively speaking, you know, the 20s were worse. I mean, the, the teens and so forth. You know, things that are so-called difficult today were, you know, were impossible in those days. You know, yep. and again, I'm a living example of 85 years old. I'm running around, you know, I shot my age a couple of times on the golf course, you know, I'm still married for 56 years. And so, so there are these messages that I want to get across. For example, in partners, find someone to love. Yeah. Find someone who you can share your life with and you, who will support you and you will support them. But recognize that's a process. Mm-hmm. And nobody's perfect. Everybody's a package and recognize that. Um, so my goal is to get this message out. And again, I did, this was something that, that evolved. The book was forced on me by my, I buried my, my background when I was 18. I said, I'm going to college. I'm not going to tell anybody where, you know, where I've been because mm-hmm. a little bit of denial helps. Just think it was very difficult. The poor kids didn't go to college and actually they were shunned. You know, if you didn't come from a good home or good people, you were shunned. So I basically, you know, I, I've stayed away from that and it was very good. So, you know, when I was 75, my, both my wife and my children said, you got to write this down. University started digging into it. Then I became a Horatio Alger person. So it's a, got out in the open. So I said, I'd write a book. And I started writing and uh, 
you know, I figured I was going to publish 100, self-publish, give it to 100 people and call it a day. I sent the galleys out. And if you look at my book in the back, all of the blurbs, people said no. Uh, Barbara Franklin, the ex-secretary of commerce, said every freshman should read this book. Mm-hmm. So that sort of interested me. Then I saw, so I said, okay. And then a publisher came along, paid me a huge stipend, thousand dollars, and took ninety percent of the revenues. <laughs> and that doesn't do anything either. He's a nice guy, but he doesn't do anything. I don't <laughs> you know, so they, don't, they don't. I mean, I'm, I'm really an expert now on publishing because you know I, I tell people your publisher doesn't do anything. You have to hire a publicist, which is a new cost. Anyway, so but I got terrific feedback initially from lots of people. Go and give this out. And uh, the book seems to resonate with both young and old. So my, what's next is to take this book to a level that, uh, you know, that we'll see what happens with it. In addition, the second book, which is the four Ps, you know, if you read the book, it's an allegory about a young mm-hmm. man who goes to an island with four, four, four villages on it, village of each one of these Ps. And it could be a video game. Mm-hmm. Wow, you know interesting. where interesting. nobody gets killed which would be interesting you huh. go to a village of passions and you can go into a house with all musicians or all engineers mm-hmm. or all chemists and you can study that as a, as a young person or you can go down in the wrong part of the village and find negative passions and so forth so this could be a video game and then it is funny you know some people have approached me on the possibility of a movie it'd be kind of fun so mm-hmm. you know life for me has always been flow if you look at my book and you see Kind of, there was always the next thing to do, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, never had much vacations in between it, but it was always the next thing. I mean, I I screwed up, you know, capital research my last few years there. Hutton came along, you know. Mm-hmm. Hutton, you know, and then Lehman came along. Then Lehman was a disaster. I did everything right. You know, you look at my record. I really, I did turn around two divisions. They both became profitable. Boss and I didn't get along. Mm-hmm. They blew me out. You know, they really didn't fire me. They couldn't fire me. I was a partner. But I went on to the next thing and it was perfect. It was my dream job being the CEO and the chairman of a small investment bank. So, and so what's next here, it seems the flow is the book and writing. And someone said to me, when you get all done with the three manuscripts, when I get them all out the next couple of years, you should write a novel. Mm-hmm. So instead of meeting my wife who follows me out to California and is in graduate school, I feel, find her in a smoky bar in San Francisco. You know, <laughs> I save her from a life of sin. <laughs> you know, we have some we have some fun with the with the, with the whole thing. We, we we dress it up a little. Maybe I'll write a novel. I've always loved to write. I don't write well, but my daughter is a writer, so there must be some gene hanging around in the whole thing. So so I've got that'll take me at eighty five. Probably take me to where I can't do much anymore. <laughs> Okay, and I got I got to take a quick segue here. First of all, you're talking to a couple pretty decent golfers. We're not great golfers, um, but we love the game. Okay, so, okay, Sean, don't make that face. At least you can admit that we both love the game of golf, right? Okay, okay. sure. So well, I, Palm Springs, you have to love it. I mean, yeah. well, I mean where, where are you, Chris? I'm I'm in Chicago, which is why I tried to oh, get Chicago, us off huh? the conversation about weather. I hope you get paid possible. more than the other guy. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, kind of, it's similar to your relationship with your uh, with your publisher you know it's it's not great but um i i feel like sean is worried that you're not getting enough rounds of golf in with all this stuff you still want to do but i gotta ask you okay how wh- when was your first time of shooting your age and when was your last time where you shot your age oh so i didn't shoot my age until i was 80 i shot 79 in 2019 that was the first one 78 actually and uh, that was my first time I ever shot my age. And I've shot about four or five times since then. Holy cow. And, and I, by the way, I, I, I stopped playing golf at 55. 
I just played a little bit of golf. And then when I was 20 or 31, 32, I came home and my three children said, dad, play tennis. And for 20 years, I didn't play golf. I never really played golf as a kid. I played baseball and basketball, sure, took up right. golf a little bit, you know, in my late twenties, but I never, I didn't play well. Started at 55 and, uh, you know, and, and I never had a hole in one and, and the member guest this year down at Ocean Reef oh, had my shit. first hole in one. Wow. Nice. Wow. So you know what the what the, the old mother said when her daughter got married? Now I can die. <laughs> <laughs> so so you get a hole in one and you're all set. I'm but, all right. So so let's stay on golf for a minute. Twelve once. I, I'm now twenty, so you know it's it's you know it's but it's fun. I mean, I I, I find that it's a walk in the park and you know, it's a place where you can camaraderie is very good. Yeah. And you, you know, in my book, I founded a golf course. Well, I was just going to ask you know, multiple golf courses. Multiple so, three of them, yeah. so, so, so it's so interesting to me that, and you do this, you say, okay, well, we need a golf course and you just go build a golf course. So, so take us through a little bit, how, how you, how you approach that. I mean, and you can use, use Nantucket as the example. Well, my, my first, my first golf course was in, in Vail. A friend of mine called me and said, we want to be you know, one of the founders. And I said, yeah, I gave him, you know, 20,000 or a hundred, I was a thousand dollars, whatever it was. And, and I really got a kick out of driving into the, the, in the bottom of the lakes they were building and so forth. I was not really that involved. I, I knew the guys there and I, I was there quite often while they were building and I got a kick out of it, but you no, know, it really was done without me. And, then we went to Nantucket. I, you know, I play golf, so I applied to the local stuffy golf course, and they rejected me. <laughs> and, you know, I'm a, and I was a guy, you know, chairman of the board of a company, chairman of the board of. I sat, I sat in Rochester. I was a trustee of the university, and blah 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 blah. And a really great guy recommended, but they rejected me and said, "Don't, don't reapply." So, Flo, instead of being a victim. I call up Fred in Vail and I said, Fred, what do you think? Well, we build a golf course in Nantucket. So I went out, I found a piece of land, 300 acres. Fred came east. Fred is the guy who's the kind of, he's the real estate legal, you know, Stanford graduate who built the one. Fred Green. Fred Green. Fred Green, yeah. yeah. So we sat around and we built this golf course. And, you know, all the things I've done in my life, there was nothing. And you guys were both, if you're both golfers, when nine holes, you're finished with those, you walk up to the snack bar. And Kelly, the good-looking girl behind, says, "What's your number?" And you say, "Number one." I mean, that's, that's the. There's nothing better than that, is there? I mean, at my age, you know. So, so you know, but but in founding the thing, we really changed 500 over 25 years now. This is, there's a book coming out by on the club that talks about this. I just finished writing, helping writing the book, and uh, you know, after 25 years, we changed 500 families' lives. Mm. You know, really came there. They guys. The woman guys wouldn't come to Nantucket unless they could play golf and they couldn't get into this club. So we built a club where they could get in. And we have really Jack Walsh was a member, you know, Bill Frist was a member. Uh, you know, there's, there's really a lot of names, Bob Wright from NBC. And they're really wonderful guys. And we also then started a charity 20 years ago, which is now the largest charity on the island. Mm-hmm. And I'm claiming it's the largest charity in the history of the island. And we've just changed the charity about three years ago from. We, we give we supply 50 different charities on the island. We also send two kids to college. We're now starting sending seven kids to vocational school, which is, mm-hmm. again, what do I, there's another one of my goals. I'm really a nut, a mini crusade on vocational education. Mm-hmm. I wrote a fabulous article on it with a guy named Ken Roman, who was the CEO of, uh, of uh, 
uh, uh, one of the big advertising firms, and no one would print it except the Nantucket paper. And now other people are talking about the same thing. I think vocational education is one of the solutions in America. Get kids to do what they want to do. I mean, there's nothing more exciting than a young man who says, or a woman who says, I want to be a chef. And you give them a, a, a scholarship to Johnson Wells. So that's one of my other crusades or one of my other goals is to see that further. You know? But there's, if we there's build so a golf course in Nantucket, it turned out to be the number one golf course built in 1998. That's a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. We were 50 in, in the country, regular 50, 198 in the world. Then we are, our, our, our clubhouse ended up being number one clubhouse built in 1990, a couple of years later. So mm-hmm. it kind of was kind of nice that we faded because we, we don't cultivate the Raiders anymore. And then we built one in London, which I found, <laughs> right. we found a piece of property there. And it's a gorgeous course, absolutely spectacular. So the, so the goal seems to be, let's go find land in the most expensive markets we can find and, and we'll build golf courses there. And we'll right? build a golf course. <laughs> they will come. You know, everybody said we would fail because the local golf course, I think the initiation was like 15 to 25,000. We started at 100, got to 250. We didn't move a shovel of dirt until I'd raised $45 million. Yeah. And actually, we gave $10 million back to the founders because it cost us only 35 to build it. In London, it was a, the, we, the Japanese had done spent $6 million per, permitting this place and getting it all set. They ran out of money. We bought it for, for $3 million. So that was a good deal. That's Three million deal. for a piece of property like that in Surrey was just spectacular. Yeah. We've got you know Thomas Bjorn, Ernie Els, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, three or four major pros that are now members out there. And it's a gorgeous place. We built a manor house. Looks like it's been there for a hundred years. And it's just, you know, and it's just all luck. I mean, I mean, and then in Vail, a guy called me up, you know, I've just founded the course and I got a kick out of doing it. But Fred Green, you know, people like that, Reese Jones, these are the kind of people who really do yeah. the work. I, I didn't do very much except, you know, go out, call a bunch of people up. <laughs> we started raising, raising the first $10 million. I called a guy up and said, you want to join? It's 200 grand yeah. or 50 of us. He said, can I talk to my wife? I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> he still remembers that. He said, okay, man, don't tell her. <laughs> so, Ed, well, uh, well so let me jump in real quick. Yeah. Just because you mentioned luck. I know you talked in your book, Ed, about skill being important, but, but luck being essential and, and, and that you've had, I think you said you've had more than your share of luck. And that to me seems like some pretty world-class perspective, considering the hand that you were dealt as a kid, which we haven't talked about yet. Um, we'll, of course, when we introduce the show, we'll, we'll, we'll bring that up, but, um, but yeah, it was, you were dealt a pretty difficult hand. And so for you to recognize the good fortune that you've had um, is admirable. Um, like, like what, how do you, how do you achieve that? Because we, I, I, I am guilty as I'm sure most people are of saying like, shit, that was a tough, that like, you know, even if it's like a putt lipping out, I'll be like, oh, I got screwed on that one. You know, that putt should have gone down or, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, uh, it could be anything to, to bigger, you know, life events. Like I, I should have gotten that job over that fella or that woman or whatever, like, like do you attribute this to just, you know, partly to the hardship you endured? Well, it's a combination. First of all, everything is context. Think about that. Think about the difference of being born in 1900 and when my father was born and 1936 when I was born. Think about his life. Just, for, just uh, Maybe this is, a, this is a segue you don't want to pursue, but let's just think about that. By the time he was 18 years old, I went through the First World War 
and, and Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. 20, 20, 18 to 21 was not a terrific period. Then you went into this crazy 20s for about six or seven years. And then you had the most difficult depression in the history of the world. Then the Second World War. Then this expected, you know, expected, you know, uh, depression after the Second World War. The 50s were okay. 60s got crazy, you know. And then the 70s with inflation and everything. The poor man was 70 years old. He didn't have a chance. And of course, 29, he lost everything which was, you know, that changed his whole life. Now, I was born in 36, pretty tough period, uh, but I was born to one of the smallest cohort of male births in mm. the history of the country. Mm. And I was followed by the baby boomer generation. Mm -hmm. That's really lucky. Now, I, I had to get through the depression, through the war, and through those other periods, through the 70s. By the time I got to the 70s, though, from, from the, you know, the 80s, 90s, zeros and ones have been fabulous. In fact, I, I say one of the problems with the young generation today is they haven't really faced anything. 9-11 was New York. I mean, you know, in St. Louis or Palm Springs, well, it happened, but it wasn't, it didn't affect them. This pandemic actually has brought home the fact that life's not simple, along with the war in Ukraine. So I was very lucky being born correctly, okay, at the right time, because I was, you know, my, my major earning years were very good periods. You know, I did a great job with Furman Sales. I grew it 25 times over 14 years. Turns out the stock market was up 10 times during that period. Mm -hmm. So I had the wind at my back. Mm -hmm. And that's where the other, another lucky point. But, you know, and also born in the right country. I mean, yeah. I was born in the United, and I dedicated the book to, one of my dedications was the United States of America. You know, this is a place where a kid like me could make it. I mean, I had nobody at my grammar school graduation, nobody at my high school graduation, nobody at my college graduation, nobody at Harvard Business School when I graduated. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have no brothers, no sisters, no aunts, no uncles, anything. It turns out I have a half brother that we can talk about that. But at the point in time in my life, I did. But a guy could like me. So that's got to be lucky. I also lucked on to marrying the right woman, you know, mm -hmm. 56 years of marriage. I mean, I, I preached the fact to find someone to share your life with, but I found the right woman who basically, you know, lived through some of my not so pleasant, you know, activities like, you know, sometimes I get very angry about things. You know, you when you grow up as I do, you automatically are angry because you keep saying you get almost every day you say, why me? Why am I in an orphanage or why am I in a foster home? Why does this kid have parents and I don't, you know, why can't, why does he learn how to swim and I can't? Learn? So those kind of things. So I've been very lucky. And, you know, I entered an industry where I caught a wave. Uh -huh. And I don't consider that quite lucky, but I consider that to be some, I, I sort of sense that. And, and I caught a wave in an industry, which really worked out really well. You know, friends of mine went to, went to the automobile industry. I went to the mutual fund industry. Mm -hmm. Automobile industry, 30 years later, was a very difficult business. 30 years later in the finance business was great. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but all, those are all lucky things. You know, uh, you know I, I, I really think that luck plays a part. And I look at these two periods of my father and myself. The only thing about the book that's brought it home to me. And, you know, you basically have to be in the right context. And it's very important to find the right context, but also to accept the right context. Because mm -hmm. if you don't accept the fact that this has a major effect on your life, you're kidding yourself. But one of the things that strikes me is you, as, as you talk about entering school, and, and I think you even call yourself Mr. Involved, um, you engaged people. I mean, you, you, you were in student government, you were in all these clubs, you were playing sports. So you entered school, even, even with, um, 
you know, tough early upbringing, and we're engaging and interacting with people. That struck me as something that, because uh, I think you even talk to yourself, talk about yourself as being kind of shy and disconnected. Yeah, was, but, was, but so did you force yourself recognizing that that was something that was going to help you over time by engaging, by being engaged in that way? It, you're, you're very great insight. And first of all, you know, begin orphanage or, or a foster home, you learn to adapt. Mm-hmm. You know, people say, oh, it's terrible. You lived in 15 or 20 different places in a YMCA and hotel rooms. Well, that disadvantage became an advantage. Mm-hmm. I mean, just to be humorous, when you move from one schoolyard to the other, you learn how to adapt because you go through all the trauma in the first one. The second one, you know, you find out who you, you know, who you can beat up and who's going to beat up you. You know, that's very important and, and what place you'll play. So I, I had to adapt all the way through. I mean, you go to an orphanage, there's rites of passage. You know, guys push you around to see whether you'll push back and so forth. So you, you learn about that. So when I went to college, it started out very rough. I arrived alone, a black leather jacket and, you know, all the wrong clothes. And, you know, and in and, and, and those days, rush week was before school started. I got rejected by all the fraternities because I, I guess not only did I look different, I felt different. Mm-hmm. But again, how was it? Even though it was awful, it was better than what I came from. I came from an orphanage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where we lived in, you know, three guys live in a room, we ate together. And so this had, there was only one roommate and it was a nice dorm room and so forth. Food was better, place was pretty. So actually it was an improvement. And then I did force myself. I said, you're going to have to do this. That's why when I denied my background, I decided to become a different person. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, you're going to fit in here. And by the end of my freshman year, I was cooking. I mean, I was, uh, I was able, I was a reasonable athlete. I was not great. I, I, played, I was a good baseball player. Basketball was too small, but I played both freshman baseball and basketball. But then I got into in, I got into this extracurricular thing, which I'm right. pitching people. You know, what knowledge do you get out of school, out of college? Talk about that. I was a chemical engineer mm-hmm. pre-computer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So my my final one of my final exams, I had 2,700 slide rule movements it was a full day exam <laughs> now think about that and how good is my education when i come into the navy computer was in all the stuff i learned was worthless mm-hmm. in many respects but i did learn in college how to think how to work and extracurricular activities actually i look back and it's one thing i'm writing the book i actually found my true passion i didn't know it at the time i i was an all i was i was you're right i was chairman of the finance board i was a president of engineering council i was an editor of the yearbook. I was business manager of the Chromatic Society. I was even social chairman of my fraternity. But the mm-hmm. biggest thing I did my junior year, taking organic and physical chemistry, I decided to start a humor magazine, mm-hmm. like the Lampoon at Harvard. Mm-hmm. The president was against it. The provost was against it. The head librarian was, this is ridiculous. We can't do this kind of thing. I put 30 people together and we did it. And you know, there's two things that come out of this. First of all, I found my true passion, which is putting people together mm-hmm. to create something a new product, solve a problem, you know, find something, you know, find something these people can do. And then when I got those people together, I found my real interest and excitement was helping people exceed their own expectations. If you feel that I want you to exceed your own expectations and you do, you're a happy person. You like working for me. Think about that. It's a message I got to send you. I got to send you that message that I really want you to succeed. What happened, of course, to me is I exceeded my own expectations because right. of that. Right. And that, so that was what I found out. And I looked back, I, I, I kind of woke up about my 40s and said, that's what you really enjoy. 
you know, and, you know, and then I added something to that, which is, you know, a person can achieve almost anything if you don't care. He doesn't care who gets the credit. It's kind of mm-hmm. corny, but mm-hmm. it's so true. Then yes. as I got older, I added to that. I started to deflect credit. Mm-hmm. When someone tried to give me credit, I'd always thought of somebody else. When I was at Harvard Business School, I did a great job as the president of the alumni association. They decided to give me a full day of credit. And I went out and did a video of the association, or associate director of, of uh, external relations because she really did the job. Mm-hmm. And I gave, gave, did a video of her during my sort of you know celebration. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, I find that, that those things sort of excited me. And that's what college gives me. It gave you a chance to really lead people. And I always so one of the things about partners, you know, I the magazine, everyone was against, you know, and so you had to go out and sell advertising. And I said to people, if you go out and sell advertising to people you've never met before in something that doesn't exist, you're all set for life. <laughs> That's what I did. Well, well, to the gas stations, the restaurants, the you know, the bars and so forth. We sold these guys advertisement, this magazine that didn't exist. Well, you did a humor magazine, but you talk about the fact that you weren't funny. I mean, I'm like, okay, well, wait, Ed says he's not funny. He's going to get to this conversation. (laughs) 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 No, I'm too serious, but but I'm funny. I tell jokes. I'm I'm a great joke teller, but I'm not fun because I'm too serious. I don't laugh a lot myself. I'm not getting that from this conversation so far. I wasn't sure. Oh, Ed's going to come. He's really serious, but. You seem. No, like... I'm, I'm, I'm funny. I'm, I'm, yeah. And it drives me crazy. Young people don't tell jokes. When we were their age, when I was 30, 35, 40 years old, we go to a party and tell jokes all night long. Because you could tell jokes about it. And I can't even tell chicken jokes now. The chickens get upset. No. <laughs> but, but. Ed, um, w- w- once you finally listened to your kids and your wife and decided to sit down and write this book, um, uh, w- was that process cathartic or was it was there some self-discovery or was it just getting down on paper things that you'd realized over the last 50 years seven years took me seven years the original the original documentation we took all the letters i saved all the letters my father written me and when he died i surprised he saved all the letters i wrote him put it all out on the table my wife put on there and then i couldn't handle it i really Uh could when we used to talk about my childhood i used to well up i i couldn't so my daughter actually wrote the first, you know, first description of my early life. She sat mm-hmm. down and wrote it. She's a, she's a, a writer and she now, she works for TED Talks. She, she does their, their things. And so she wrote the first one. I can talk about it now, but then I couldn't. I actually, I got up and I would, I would stop. I couldn't, I, I couldn't handle it. And so I, that was a difficult thing. It took me a long time. And then I decided not to really make that a very small part of it and write this allegory. And I got that book done in two and a half years. And I met a woman who wrote eight New York Times bestsellers and said, great book, but this forget that. You know, I want to really write your autobiography. I'll get, I'll get you a New York Times bestseller. So she, she begged me, which was a great writer, great writer, but we spent a year and a half together and she didn't have my voice. Mm-hmm. She wanted to hate my, wanted me to hate my father. She wanted more drama than was, I ended up drama in my life. She wanted more drama. And so we finally broke off relationships, got another woman. We got eight months into her and she had a, she had a, a mother died, a father died, and her mother had Alzheimer's. So I finally found a guy who'd been following me around for five years, said, Ed, I want to do your book. And, you know, Al, and, and COVID came along, and in three months, we had these big manuscripts from these three writers that I, we put together, and then the book had. But it was, a, it was a catharsis. And also, 
all kinds of things that I started to learn from publishing. First of all, when you write something down, you're trying to convey a thought. That's only the first step. Second step is when someone reads it, are they, are they understanding what you're trying to convey? That's number one. Number two is separating what's reality or fact from what you remember. Mm-hmm. I only remember four foster homes. Turns out there were five. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't remember my saying to the woman, you know, I want to take my first communion. I got to find my baptismal certificates. That was a great letter that I found. This woman, I mean, here's a 10 year old telling his father who's Jewish saying, we want the baptismal mm-hmm. certificates. So, you know, these, these it, was, it was cathartic, but I also learned a lot from it. But it was a difficult process. It was seven years. I ended up with three manuscripts. I'm hoping to publish all three of them, but. But it was, and, and the, the struggling with my childhood, you know, I really had trouble with those going back into that because the first foster home was awful. Yeah. I still remember, you know, I mean, was, I was five, six years old. I can still remember how horrible it was. They were, they were just terrible people. And, you know, they, they, they you know, they were, they were, they were abusive. Yeah. And, you know, I had, you know, I, I left out things like I had a dog once and during my, one of my foster homes, he got run over by a car. You know, and you know, these, these, I can still remember getting picking a dog and having dog blood on my, my shirt and things uh, like that. Yeah, but that was a hard. Those are hard things. But looking back at the whole thing, all those experiences became advantages. Well, I yeah, became I, adaptable. Yeah. I became resilient. I became. I had perseverance, and I became self reliant. You know, those things. You know, a lot of kids grow up in fabulous neighborhoods and great go to great schools. They have anxieties when they go out in the real world. You know, right, one thing right. I didn't have was anxieties. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, our group, Men Living, is uh, you know a big part of. Well, I don't want to talk about it. Uh, I think the mission has changed a few times. It's been tweaked in terms of the language, but but like there is a component of Men Living that's that's centered around sort of redefining masculinity and and you know being able to ask for help. I know. It, I think it was in chapter or an early chapter of your book. You talked about this notion of your attitude towards your family history as you were navigating life and and being uh i think you said humiliated uh by your past at some point and you also noted that it was uncommon back then to 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 do therapy uh yeah. oh if you you remember there was a presidential candidate that they found out he was in therapy gone right 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 and if you told people you were you were in hell boy sure you're nuts yeah yeah, and I think that one might easily argue that that seeking help from a therapist is is still too uncommon, uh, particularly among men. Um, and so I, I I hope I don't know if it's too much to ask, but did you ever you know as as we evolved as as a society, did you ever get seek help? Um, yes, yeah. it's in my book. I, uh, it, you, the chapter on when my father died. My father oh, died I, suddenly, a heart okay. attack in his car. Right. And at the time we were, we were in peaceable coexistence. We could say we were estranged because my father, you know, started to disagree with everything that I was doing. You know, he's very excited about me being in the Navy. When mm-hmm. I decided to leave Navy, disagree with that. When I went and left, decided to leave, go, leave it, when I left the engineering profession, when I had a good job and everything else, I didn't have enough money to go to school. He didn't have any money at the time. I went to Harvard Business School without the first year's tuition in my pocket. I mean, it was, a, it was a gamble. I just went there and said, look, guys, I'm here. You got to lend me the money or else I have to leave. They said, OK. Uh, then there's no scholarships in those days. So he, he, then he, what he really disagreed with was my hiring Barbara because she looked like my mother. And I didn't know what she looked like. I didn't know what my mother looked like. Right. So father and I were pretty well estranged. 
although we had peaceable coexistence, we write, we talk. He came to the house for the birth of my second child. Things were okay, but he died suddenly. So I didn't bring, ever bring closure to our relationship. And so what I did was I went to the Ackerman Institute in, in New York, a woman named Peggy Penn, unfortunately, she now has Alzheimer's, but, but, and she, we spent six, over six months together. And she started out with the fact that I would start writing letters to my father asking questions. And that was, you know, obviously very good. The key to it, she said, now you will sit down and write letters pretending you your father oh. and answer those questions. Mm. And then I'd bring those two papers in and we sit down and spend, you know, a couple hours discussing it. And another week would go by and it was very painful, very mm-hmm. painful. But uh, I think I, I got to the point where I was sort of, it wasn't closure, but I didn't, didn't bother me anymore, but it really yeah. bothered me because, you know, this man, as I understood him eventually, you know, it was not his fault. I mean, the guy, you know, he did what he could do. And he, 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 he was, you know, he was basically in the wrong profession, the wrong time of his life. Everything went wrong for him between 29 and 33. And I actually became sensitive to this because in business, I came across some of my friends who had taken topples you know, in 74 when the market crashed. Mm-hmm. What did to them, did to their marriages, did to their personal lives and so forth. And even some of them died earlier. So I recognize that when you go, when my father went from nothing to a, he was at his own airplane, he had property, he had everything. From 29 to 33, he lost everything because he was leveraged, you know, in RCA stock and things like that. And he lost his mother too, very close to his mother. His father was kind of a, a nice man, but not special. And so he lost all that in 33. In fact, in the book, it says that he said to me, Ed, I was either going to commit suicide or drive to California. Right. Mm-hmm. Lucky for me, he drove to California. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So, but that, but that, you know, that is what, you know, that's that I did get help. And I believe in help now. In fact, as a, a friend of mine recently lost his wife and he got very sick, you know, six months later. And I said, Bill, you know, forget doctors, go to go some, get some help. Cause you're going through enormous stress right now. Mm-hmm. His wife was, I mean, his wife has Alzheimer's visited five times a week. I said, he used to be a terrific dancer. When you go there, it's affecting you. And he, I'm hoping to get him. Men don't do it, though. Right. I mean, I'm, in a, I'm, a, I'm in a couple of groups, men's groups. I'm YPO. We have our own forum. Mm-hmm. And I'm a very strong believer in, you know, in some kind of help. And, but in those days, you couldn't do it. If you, yeah. you know, universities are filled with it today. In fact, I'm, I'm now an honorary trustee of something called Wiley, which is a fabulous organization in Boston. They counsel foster kids mm. you you go you, you sign up with them as a foster child and you have to talk to a counselor once a week mm. once a week, just like mm. your parents so this sounds like a, you know do you need the organization man yeah, maybe, maybe not during covid you desperately you need these kids had no place to go and we, oops. Uh-oh. you still there ed these people had no place to go as a phone number uh and then, so that why they placed half these kids around there they also there are 70 of them now they have a group and so they can share. I'm doing the same thing at Northeastern. I have 20 kids in that group that are basically first first gens. And I'm this has been a whole new avenue. By the way, what's next? And by the way, you're you're helping me out with what's next because I'm starting to realize there are a lot of what's next. You know, yeah. What's next? Getting these groups of kids that you know that they look at me and they say, yeah. It's one one gal said, you know, I was kind of going to give up, and I said to her, don't worry about the academics. Worry about the social. Overcome right. your feelings. Right. Don't feel different. Feel the same. Dress the same for a while, yeah. But but no, it, so but it, that's but it, the that's the struggle. But it's interesting. There's a you know a couple of messages that you started the conversation with is um, 
that I think are really powerful are, you know, the inspection of the inner self and how does someone really do that? And then don't be a victim. And so I'm, so I'm curious about when we talk about getting help for someone to go through that process, because I think it can be difficult to do it individually. Do you see that same thing or do, or is there at some level, you have, still, an individual still, has to, I have to look at it. I, I'm still being right. self-reliance. That's why this inner voice thing is that's a personal thing. Yeah. You know, I, but I do believe that everybody's different. Some people need group therapies, but I think that you, at certain points in your life, you go through a really difficult situation. You definitely should get help. Otherwise, I still would prefer to have people to have conversation with themselves yeah. and develop the ability to overcome things themselves. Because choosing a counselor is pretty you know, risky and it's expensive and uh, you know, it can take a long time. And you know, certain counselors will dump you. you know, she would only do three sessions at a time and you had to go away for a while. Others will keep you forever, and then you become dependent on it. So it's a a complicated process. I was very lucky. I found a very fine woman who really helped me out and took six months, and I was sort of healed, or at least to the point that I go out and be by myself again. I wasn't as angry. I wasn't annoyed at myself for not bringing closure and so forth. She helped me through that. But I believe that it it is something that, especially during traumas, very important, because I think the physical and the mental are tied together. Mm -hmm. And I've had... More people die, you know, in my in my my close group when they've had either their spouses died or they have the trouble in business or something. This has a big effect on you. And so, if you want to live a happy, a longer life, I think you have to solve these problems. But, Do you have but, some advice for how people can go about doing that work well, you, on you, their you own? To, it's, it's a human relationship. You got to find a counselor that you know that you can get along with. And there, uh-huh. there there's lots of good people and well trained people today. I mean, I have. This wonderful lady that I've come across, uh, Dale Atkins, who I think is just spectacular, who I've recommended to my, my, my children. You know, she, she wrote a book called I'm Okay, You're Okay, and she deals with families and so forth. You know, again, it depends what your problem is, and you got to find, just like a medical doctor, you got to find someone who is professional. And you do it through your friends. You know, you, if you've got a group of people, I, I highly recommend men's groups who are willing to talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Our YPO group will talk about almost anything mm-hmm. i mean early on we were kind of you know we were comparing swords every week and all of a sudden one guy came in and said my wife's cheating on me mm-hmm. it changed the whole group mm-hmm. then one guy said well my son's a drug addict you know and then, then we got you know, got going you know mm-hmm. and everybody sort of laid out you know opened up to kimono and so but i think that men's groups you know talk about it mm-hmm. and if you need a guinea pig somebody's got to sort of come forward uh but it's not easy it's not easy and you know, it's a very individual thing. Look, I waited till I was uh, father died about 36 before I actually had any help whatsoever. And by the way, people have recommended it to me who got to know me, and I've never do it. And when I was very angry sometimes on a golf course or tennis court, you know, but I never did. But this was this was a trauma that I had to solve. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the same time I was going through a little difficulty with my son, my oldest son, he goes, unfortunately, and this is another sort of human aspect. My oldest son was a teenager when I was at Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers was a difficult experience for me. Mm-hmm. This brings up my great concept of the four words. Besides the four Ps, there are four parts of life. Self, family, work, and community. Community is my word for giving back. Mm-hmm. And you, it is an unbelievable balancing act. In fact, one of the, the chapters in my third book is that balance is bullshit. 
You're never in balance. <laughs> By definition, to be successful, you got to focus. When you focus on your work, you spend less time with your family. You focus on community, less time on work. Focus on yourself, you focus on... So if you focus, you automatically got out of balance. So it's a juggling act. You are going to have a couple balls in the air. And I was at Lehman Brothers for seven years. It was like 14 years. And those were the years my oldest son was growing up. And I think I probably gave him less time than I should have. And it bothered me. And so I actually, this woman, Peggy Penn, helped me with that relationship too. The two of us went to for a while. And, but you, know, you couldn't do that when I, in, in 1960, in 1954. You know, mm-hmm. you, if, you, if you were a poor kid, they rejected you. And if you were, had pro- problems, boy, then you would really be in bad shape. Uh-huh. So I had to be a regular guy, you know. Yep. I, I, you know, I cut my hair, I bought a tweed jacket, you know, you know the whole the whole schmear of being mm-hmm. accepted. And I got accepted, you know, more mm-hmm. or less. Yeah. Never really fully accepted. Mm-hmm. Even, even at graduate school where, you know, everybody was from Princeton, it never really quite made it. I mean, I, I tell the story, which is, I, I modified a little bit because my legal people said, don't do it. But I got to Harvard Business School. The first thing my roommate did before I arrived is went over to the admissions director and said, I made it very clear I don't want to live with a foreign student. <laughs> uh, oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. He said, no, no, Mr. Hajim is a Hajim is a, is actually a naval officer and, and so forth and so on. And he said, well, I really want, you know, you know the okay, all right. And uh, we, uh, Roger and I, you know, started out a very bad, very bad structure. It was awful. I'm a jabber and and we were walking over to breakfast. The first morning he says, I don't talk in the morning. <laughs> you know, well, it got to the point where, you know, we lived, we were, you know, three feet apart for, for, for a couple of years. And then when we moved, both moved to Greenwich, we were a mile apart for 35 years. Actually, I spoke at his wife's funeral. So we've become, you know, very close friends. Mm-hmm. Well, I, anyway. I was, it's funny you talk about funeral. I was going to ask, uh, and I apologize, I apologize if I missed this in the book as well, but <laughs> um, did, did you speak at your dad's funeral? Did I what? Did you speak at your father's funeral? No. No, yeah. no. Well, no, he was, I, I actually got a, a, I bought him two lots and uh, we didn't have a funeral. I just, I made an announcement. No, a few people showed up and that was it. It wasn't, okay. wasn't anything. I bought him two lots in a, in a very fine cemetery in Fort Lauderdale. I recently visited and they basically, they, they changed the whole place and it's just kind of a little larger space for him. But, you know, no, I didn't. Interesting. Uh, so it was it was it was extremely difficult when he died. In fact, yeah. thank God for Barbara's mother who went to his apartment and went through everything and so forth. It was, you know, I, I hadn't. He was the only person I had in my life. We didn't bring closure. I essentially, you know, because he rejected everything I was doing, we, we just had this you know unfortunate experience, and I felt sorry for him. He also had no money. He wouldn't. Mm-hmm. You know, he he died with very little money. He was hand to mouth to the end. And he would never take anything from me. Mm. So it was hard, very hard. And it was all I had. And by the way, he did support me all through the period. I mean, until I, until I started to become a man, then he, then he wanted to reject everything. And I couldn't blame him there either. The Navy or the Merchant Marines, when he was an officer, it was the best part of his life. And here was I. I was a very successful naval officer. I mean, I got good reports and so forth. Here I was leaving that to go off into this engineering field, you yeah. know, you know, he's, he couldn't understand that. You know, I was yeah. in a uniform, and I, and I, 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 I qualified for command duty officer for chief engineer. I mean, was, he just said, "Well, you're crazy. What are you doing?" You know, and so, but, but I, I and I knew what I wanted to do. Yeah. And so, but, but so it was a very difficult period. And you know, it's with his father, but your father, you know, who's your only, only living relative. You know, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, and HBS is always a pretty good gamble too. You talk about that being a gamble. That was a big gamble. You know, going <laughs> up there, you know, and, you know, and, and, you know, I went in and I remember the guy saying to me, you know, you know, uh, this is Ed Hagen. He's from a small school in upstate New York. Rochester is not a small school. It's got four, no. four billion dollar budget and thirty thousand employees and so forth. It was a big deal. But they introduced me to that because everybody it looks like every, every half the kids were in Princeton, the other half from Harvard and Yale, mm-hmm. and they all dressed well, you know, and they all came from very fine families and all that kind of stuff. So there weren't many. There were no poor kids at Harvard either. And I had I basically I had five thousand dollars to my name, and I went and got, tuition was five grand. And I went up and said, "Hey guys, you know." I need the money. And they said, okay, well, in the table. And I said, okay. And it was a, it was a great experience. Harvard business school is by far, but again, here again, what I preach to kids is don't waste your summers. I was convinced I should be an international businessman. Mm-hmm. When I was in Navy. I was in Japan. I learned Japanese. I loved being in a foreign experience. And of course, having lived as a child, going through so many changes, foreign experiences require you to be able to adapt. And I adapted very well to Japanese society or Chinese society. We went to Hong Kong. I became very friendly with lots of people. So I want to be an international businessman. So between business years at the business school, I took a job in Belgium. I learned French, worked for a Belgian chemical company, mm-hmm. and realized not a good deal. All family businesses, small businesses, difficult to deal with. You got to really learn the language. Got to learn French. You got to learn Flemish too. Done. Second year, I got a job in the financial industry, but I talked them into giving me the summer off. I took a summer, I went to, went to Central America. Learned, I came fluent in Spanish. They, mm-hmm. I spent 30 days in Boston, eight to five learning Spanish. I went down to Central America. We were creating a business school, uh, a local negocios in, in Nicaragua. And, and I figured I'd be a big super gringo. I'd go down there, buy a business, take over the you know, organization. I found out not a good idea. Mm-hmm. You know. Those businesses were all, you know, corrupt. They're all small mm-hmm. and so on. So I decided by doing those two experiments not to be an international businessman. And it saved my life because mm-hmm. for 20 years, international business was not terrific. You know, it was really a hard place to be and so forth. And the financial business on the other hand, it was, you know, was taking off. So trying things out, I, I tell kids, don't waste your summers. That's a real message. Go on into the real, find something you want to do and recognize that when something is described as a particular job, the name may be totally different than what you do Monday morning. Mm-hmm. Now you, you, that investment banking analyst thing is really humorous. I mean, what you physically do Monday morning and what kind of responsibility you have is so important in a job. So, well, so, so I'm really interested about your earlier comment regarding uh, vocational education. So uh, I view this perspective that we create a path that, young people have to follow. And when you don't follow that path, then you're out of sorts. That if you don't go from high school to college for four years. Now, I think you're, you're really interesting in the sense that you support University of Rochester. I mean, colleges, you, you're an advocate for that. But then you're also like, hey, college isn't for everyone. So, so explain more where you're at as it relates to these paths that young people have to follow. And, and I think it fits into the whole passion discussion as well, because, you know, Hey, young man, young woman, you have to follow this path. I don't care what your passion is. You have to go to college. You have to do it this way rather than the ability to do it the way that's best for them. What's, what's your thought on that? You're right on. That's, that's one of my crusades. And it's come, it's come to me in the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, I didn't have it. It wasn't something I looked at before, 
looking at what young people should do. They should find their passion. And it was fixing cars or taking care of horses or being a chef or being a first responder. I mean, I not only support up in Nantucket, we just gave a lot of money and I'm involved in the community college here in the Upper Keys. And if we listen to a woman who's got a couple of kids, just went through their public safety program. She's not a, a, a police person, you know, and she really wants to be a police person. That's what's her, that's her really enthusiastic. I mean, make you cry. She's so enthusiastic about it. She's so happy to become trained as a public safety officer, mm-hmm. you know. And then the marine engineer wants to fix, you know, engines and boats. He really loves that. I mean, why should he put this person through, uh, you know, 14th century Eastern European history? I mean, you don't need to do that. You know, I mean, this concept, we all have to go to college. I mean, I wrote this article, which did. Right. Willing to yeah, publish. It's, I saw and it. I, but I think one of the, the solutions to America and, and to the, a lot of things, a lot of problems we have is giving people the right to do the things they want to do. You know, I mean, uh, my article, the head, the heading on article is harder to get an appointment with the electrician than this your doctor. Mm-hmm. And by the way, mm-hmm. you know, when my computer goes down, the guy who comes and fixes that is as important to me as my doctor. <laughs> right. fact, if, right. if you if you said I couldn't do the Zoom this morning, right. I probably right. get hives. You know, right. <laughs> you know, seriously. Well, I mean, and so this this guy, this this, this fellow friend of mine, he comes over, Jonathan. He comes over, presses a few buttons, and. Backward, you know, your modem has to be attached. Okay, yeah. attach it, you know. And so, you know, it, that's very important. And, and I, I'm working with also, I, I've kind of given this up because I have too many things going on. The, AS, the American Society of Mechanical Engineers now recognizes they need four or five technicians for every engineer. They've mm-hmm. started to move down the, the, the value chain, so up the value chain, I don't know, maybe up the value chain, to training people to be technicians. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being a technician is just as important as being the engineer. Or let's face it, nurses are as important as doctors. Yeah. But we might and, think that, but then, but then parents aren't necessarily supportive of that direction. That, right? That's what we have I mean, to get across. We have to get right. across. Got to right. be proud that your son is a chef or your daughter is a policeman. I mean, right. that's something you have to accept the fact. And if you accept the fact that if you look at any kind of you know generational thing, people change. I mean, I always, my my friends and I always look at how did these kids come out of you know you know how did they, I couldn't marry my daughter for example. I mean. She she's a wonderful, wonderful lady, but you know, her viewpoints on things are totally different than mine. Right. And we still love each other. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But so that you know, I, I find I should erase take that out of the, the script. I don't want to do anything, get in trouble with my daughter, but you know, it's 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 something that we have to really change as society. And society has to change. And the yeah. Germans do it, and the Israelis do it, and the Norwegians do it, and so on. Same thing with the draft. I think that when you're 18 years old or 20 years old or 21 years old, you should spend some time giving back to the country. Mm. I'd put the draft in in a minute if I was the president of the United States, mm. where if you're a conscientious objector, you got to do something else, like like the Mormons, you know. Mm-hmm. Doing something that early in your life, it gives you a totally different perspective. It really does. I mean, it, that's, the military was just an absolute and unbelievable learning experience. In fact, if you read the Hillbilly Elegy, the Hill wrote that, Kane, mm-hmm. if you look carefully, the Marine experience changed his life. There's nothing like having your head shaved like everybody else or, you know, or, or having to stand in line with a bunch of guys getting ejected, go to go overseas. It's just, it's just, a, it's a good experience. Mm-hmm. And so we don't, kids don't have that anymore. You know, and they don't do it. And I find kids from West Point and, and Naval Academy are very different than anybody else. So, so I, but anyway, that, that's a long answer to a short question. It's one of no, my major it's, problems. It's no. perfect. No. <laughs> Not at all. Well, uh, 
we're, we're, we got a few more minutes to go. And Ed, one of the things we do um, at the end of these conversations is uh, we, we ask uh, a couple canned questions, uh, kind of like the old uh, Inside the Actor Studio. Um, and so what we're looking for is you just to give your your knee-jerk reaction answer to these questions. Sure. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, don't think too hard. Um, first question is, what do you wish you could have told your 10-year-old self? I see. I, I'm in the camp of not doing no do-overs. No mm. do-overs. No do-overs. Mm. No do-overs. Because mm. you don't know about the unintended consequences. What I could have told my 10-year-old self is, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. There you I go. told myself that. You're going to make it. Um, what, uh, what do you hope that people will say about you at your wake? That he did the best job he could. And he, did, he gave to other people. Love in my mind is giving to others. Well, that's, yeah, that's, you use Scott Peck's quote at the beginning, yeah, or his exactly. definition of love at the beginning of your book. He yeah. sold 10 million copies, so I'm, 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 that's why you, I traveled so much, people didn't travel, that's why I kept picking up with that solution, and also the craziness of growing across country with my father, so. but yeah, Scott Peck said, giving to others. Yep. Yeah. Well, and I also saw at some point, I don't know if it was in the book or on a, on a podcast where you quoted Guy Kawasaki talking about going out into the world and making meaning, uh, um, which seems like people might say about you. Um, you've, you've made some meaning. You've made some money, too, uh, Ed, but, you, but you've also made a lot of meaning, I think. Um, lastly, uh, do you have a mantra in life or even a mantra that you use these days? Good, very good question. Um, gratitude. Mm. Single word, gratitude. People ask me how I am. I say I'm grateful. Mm. And with that, I try to say thank you to as many people every week as I can. Mm. You know, a friend of mine, Walter Green, who wrote a book called This Is The Moment, he stopped when he was 70. He had a list of 44 people. Each person he gave, he made a list of why he wanted to thank him. He wanted to physically thank them. This was written, you know, 10 years ago. I give the book out to everybody and I try to thank people every week or do something for somebody every week. There's a lady who just wrote a book. Her, her child was born maldiformed, no, lost, didn't have an ear, only had one kidney and so forth. And the book talks about her trials through that. I spent, you know, a, a good chunk of the last couple of days getting her hooked up with other people written books like that. You know, and just every kind of week or two, find someone that you can do something for. And that makes you makes you feel good. And you've done something. You push somebody just ahead a little bit. You know, a little girl from foster home, you know, is gonna, wants to wants to be in HR. And she's she's gotten accepted in the graduate school. She needs a job in the summer. I try to find a place that she might get a job in HR. Very hard to do because nobody wants to hire someone who's going to graduate school. So those are mm. last, those last couple of weeks. But gratitude is the one word that, I you know, that. that I, I think is very important. I'm really grateful for everything I have. And I've really been very lucky. And this book is even making, making it more lucky to me. You know, who at my age would have the chance to talk to two smart guys like you for an hour? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we're great. We're grateful that you came and decided to talk with us. So we really appreciate it. And thank you for that. No, no, my, my privilege. And, it just every time I talk to someone like you, I, I learn something about myself and uh, about life. And, and 
And if I can get just to, just to help people just get over those those few bumps, and I and it makes a big difference. I mean, I and again, I I preach scholarship because you know I have a little young lady who's my one of my first scholarships who's Sarah Walters, five foot high. She was an optical engineering major. She's now a PhD. She got an MBA in her spare time one summer. She plays the concerts, concert pianist and concert violinist. And she said, you know, it wasn't for you, Mr. Hager, I wouldn't be here. Man, come on. Uh, what do you need? What, what, what? Yeah. You, you give right. back so much more than you give, you know. And, and, you know, I would love to have made more money because I'd love to give more money away. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 you know, it's, it's not, it's not something you have to make money. You have to make, you have to be financially secure. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's another thing in my life, and I believe in this. You have these principles through life. Mine, one of my principles is the second golden. First golden rule was the most important. Second golden rule was he who has the gold rules. I had no money, so I had to make money, and it was important to me. At age 45, 46, I shifted that from making money to freedom. Freedom became much more important to me. I left Lehman Brothers and went to Furman Cells. And I traded in the fanciest dining room in the world for, for a a conference room with two hot plates. I trained in office to the whole whole downtown, the whole uh, Bay of, of, of New York to a room, to an office, to a wall next door, because I wanted freedom. Mm-hmm. Freedom was my goal. Of, mm-hmm. And my wife said, you never have to promote it again. You're the chairman of the board. Don't, don't worry about it. So just, so these are the kinds of things I want to pass on. And if people can recognize when this is happening, then they're way ahead of the ball game. In other words, when they're, when they're at Hutton and the guy says, I don't want to pursue the institutional business, and you know that's the future, and you decide to lead because of that, makes it much easier and also gives you much more strength. So, well, I, Oh, go, go ahead, Sean. No, go ahead, Chris. Well, I just add, how old are your oldest grandchildren? 29. He's an environmental engineer living with his girlfriend in Chicago. No kidding. And I'm trying to convince him to go to graduate school. I'm not sure I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it. Well, uh, hopefully he'll listen to this. Nine. Uh, okay. A- any of those kids uh, like to get out to the golf course with you? Yeah, my my middle well, my my middle son plays. No, none of the none of the grandchildren there. They're oh, not golfers. No, they really aren't. And the the the, he's, the ninth, the twenty nine year old is a weightlifter. No I mean, kidding. Uh, but, you know, he, 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 you know, the guy. Let's just he, note that Ed made a face at weightlifting. He's a great big guy, right. you know. Right. He, but he's an environmental engineer and he loves what he's doing, so that's good. You know, then then there there I have, my oldest got married early and he's had three boys and then my middle two, my second and third got married late and they're the oldest they have there's fourteen. So and they, they they've been out on the golf course. My 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 middle son's son looks like he's a golfer. He was out there banging away and my and my daughter's second boy plays golf a little bit but they're still young so they're, they're you know eight ten years old they're not there yet sounds like you and got a great crew you know, they don't belong to clubs yet either yeah. so yeah that's another whole conversation <laughs> yeah i just and I'm talking about another whole conversation i just wanted to add that you know um as you talk about hutton and lehman and there's so many lessons here from an entrepreneurship standpoint both within companies and starting from scratch your whole idea about you know don't start something without a platform and i mean there's just a lot of other business lessons in this i think that would be valuable for folks um yeah i thought it was great i really i really i mean i made all the mistakes i was i was an entrepreneur which didn't work I, right. And I've been an entrepreneur. I mean, right now I'm, I'm involved in a company that makes toys for people with dementia. Oh, wow. And, and this, these toys, these dogs and cats respond to the people when they touch them. 
And the thing is selling like hotcakes. You know, we did 10, from nothing, we did 10 million in sales last year. But it's a real- he, You're still doing Oikos. You're still doing startup businesses. Yeah, you're not slowing down, man. Oh, you're, ki- you're, you're killing you're, me. You may it's be actually speeding up. Right, yeah. right. Well, you know, <laughs> right. my wife, right. my wife has sat down, she's, you gotta tell me about all this, you're gonna die. I said, are they gonna poison me? You know what I mean? I, mean, I'm like, I, I love, nothing, nothing's more important than a startup business. I mean, this guy actually was at Hasbro. So he had three or four million in sales and they didn't want to do the old people's toys. So he spun himself. He had a platform. So, wow. Yeah. But I also, I, I, to me, I'm a sucker for these, for young people that, you know, have an idea and want to do something. And so, you know, and, and a couple of them paid off. And most of them haven't, but it's been fun. I have one last question. Are you on social media? I, I, I actually, that was the thing I didn't do. But now that I'm doing the book, I've got on LinkedIn. And what else? I don't, and I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Instagram. No, okay. just LinkedIn so far. Okay. I, I, I figured again, how are you going to, how are you going to use your energy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I decided not to. Also the mantra that I had when I was in the business was to live happy, was to live hidden. So this yeah. whole experience of going yeah. out and becoming public is really right. new to me. Right. You know, I felt the publicity in, in the financial business, the next step for jail. I mean, I would turn down interviews with CNBC and, because also that's energy. Right. You know, I want to use my energy with my clients, my, with my employees. As soon as you become a public figure, the energy required is totally yeah. different. And you don't That's want great, to do that unless you have point. to. Now, yep. now I don't have any business. I'm still chairman. of. That's another joke. A professor of business school runs that company. He called me up and said, I want you to be the chairman. I said, what does the chairman do? He says, nothing. I said, I'll take the job. <laughs> 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 so, so, you know, but it's not true. I mean, I mean he, he's been working me out pretty well. But, but no, but, but now I can really spend time on being a public figure and being careful not to say things that are, you know, that I'm, I'm a little bit garrulous and I can, you can get in trouble today, you know, if you're not careful. Yeah. So, yeah. But, but when you're running a business and you're out there, you know, in the open, and I, I basically stayed away from everything. In fact, when I sold the company, uh, Lou Dobbs called me and said, I, he said, I, I want you on television at four o'clock. I said, I'll see you tomorrow morning. He says, old news. Uh-huh. <laughs> wow yeah wow. so you know I, I stayed away from that now i'm out there and i'm i've done linkedin i'm not going to do facebook uh uh and linkedin is starting to pick up there's you know i haven't done social media no okay. and i i don't disagree with it i just think that it requires a certain amount of energy that, that i will place in other directions i'm Great i'm point. a nut on on energy allocation that's why i say those four parts of life you you, you allocate energy to it and the other parts start to and you see this all the time when people spend too much time on business, their sure. families go down the tubes. Yeah. And I, great I mean, point. it's really important to yeah. balance that because, you know, if you finish up being a great businessman and you're divorced four times, it ain't fun. I mean, it's, right. that's what's left when it all is said and done. Yeah. And even then, if you work your ass off on it, families are still complicated, you know. Agree. Sure. Well, Ed, uh, it's been a treat talking to you. Um, we'll, we'll try we'll to tell try- the truth. We'll track yeah, tell the truth. Yeah, we'll track you the down. truth. We'll track you down on LinkedIn. We'll connect that way. If you ever need a fourth, uh, uh, call call me. And then if I can't make it, Sean, we'll, we'll see if Sean can make it. I need I need I one favor. If you do read the book, please go to Amazon and give me a rating and a, uh, a you know one line review. That that helps. My publisher. Well, yeah, my publisher wants you to do that. He he likes that. So yeah, no, I oh, yeah. I, I listened to the audio book. I read and, it and read the book. Yeah, yeah. Is the audio book good? It is Shapiro good. Does a great job. Let me just give you a last vignette. Shapiro's father. Shapiro's old, the same age as my oldest son. We interviewed ten guys, by the way, for for that. That he's done fifty books. He, anyway, his father is a 
about my age, maybe a year one way or the other. His father married a woman in 1965, like my wife, when we got married. She owned a 1964 Valiant gray convertible. And that's what my wife owned. <laughs> oh no! How's that so weird. He's also that? a naval officer and he's an engineer. So his father and I were very, very close. He, he didn't have the same upbringing, but and Bob is a great, great guy. The audio was good, wasn't it? It was, it was really good. good yeah, I listen to a lot of those, and and my daughters will get into the car and they'll be like, "Oh my god, I can't stand this person's voice." <laughs> but but he got uh, rave reviews from my kids. It, so. it, exactly. Yeah. I believe in audio. By the way, I, I listen to all I'm, all my stuff is audio now. I mean, yeah. And I, I never read fiction in my life because I. I think, you know, people, real people are more interesting than fictional people. But I started reading fiction about four or five years ago. And I say I'm, I'm a sucker now. It's, it's a, Me too. Yeah. I understand why people read fiction. It's yeah. just caption, you know, right. And audio, audio goes to that energy allocation that you're talking about, right? Like, you, it's kind oh, of yeah. like downtime well, see, in the I car. I walk every day. Oh, there you go. It's boring to walk. Now I, you know, my friend in San Diego says, you can't do that. You'll get run over. But an ocean reef knows no traffic. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Ed, thanks for your time. Hey, you thank you. We really, we really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. Much. This is Chris. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of If You've Come This Far. And this is Sean. Remember to check us out at menliving.org. <laughs>